I believe you've you've been here once before, speaking to us on the topic of depression. Is that right? Yes, yes. I came. Oh, I don't know, four or five years ago now. We've had COVID, haven't we? So. Okay. Yeah. Great, great. Well, it's good to have you back. Um, Thank you. Uh, maybe for those who, who don't know you, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah. Um, I guess I grew up in a Christian home. Ended up going to medical school in London and tried to be good and do all the right things I've been taught at home. But I don't think at that stage I was born again. It wasn't really until my mid-30s that I came to know Jesus and um, and understood the gospel for the first time. And that was when I was working as a GP down near Swindon. And um, that's when I first got involved with the topic of abortion, really. I mean, I had been on the edge of things and debates and conversations at medical school, but I hadn't really had to think about it myself. Mm. And I did start to think about it as a GP. Um, But I could pretty much distance myself from it. And it it was really writing that little book that you've got out there Mm. that really helped me firm up how to approach it, uh, I think, in a pastoral situation anyway. And and was that the thing that drove you um, to to write write the book? Was was it pastoral situations or...? Um, not so much that. I was asked to do it with, yeah. with Vaughan because of yeah. my medical background, I think. Sure. Um, yeah, but what the reason that I want to speak about it now really is not so much the topic of abortion. Mm. As important as that is, it's the gospel that is weighty enough to hold every aspect of this problem, yeah. which is so heartbreaking and unjust. And there's so many issues and complex factors behind it. But the gospel's got all covered, um, which is just amazing. We'll look at a passage from Colossians later. And, mm. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, can I pray for you before yeah, you come thank and speak you. to us? Yeah, Father God, we thank you uh, for your word that it, that it is uh, powerful, that we can hold to it, and that it gives us life. We pray, Lord, for, for Lizzie now as she comes to speak to us, and may we have soft hearts that we would receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege. Um, and I hope um, uh, this, this evening um, maybe you'll, you'll gather information that you weren't previously aware of. Um, maybe some things will shock. Um, but I hope, too, that our hearts will be warm to the Lord Jesus um, as we think about this issue. So, yes, just to, to recap it, I was a GP. Um, for the first 15 years of my life and then moved to South Africa for 10 years. I've been back at St. Ebbs now for a further 10 years, um, heading towards retirement, but I don't see that coming anytime soon. <laughs> so um, abortion is a sensitive issue, but it's a very important one. And as difficult as it is to talk about, we really must. Um, but before I want, I say, before we carry on though, I want to say that although I b- believe that the Bible does speak to the topic of abortion, It speaks even more clearly about the love of the Lord Jesus for those who've been affected by it um, and the complex issues that surround us. It speaks of the Lord's compassion. It speaks of his longing to comfort and forgive each one of us, including those who wish they could have done life differently. And I reckon that's pretty much all of us. Um, When thinking about this issue, there is one uh, verse that I always like to have front and foremost in my mind. Um, Would you like to move this? Yeah. And it's this from the beginning of Romans chapter 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul has just been explaining in early chapters, hasn't he, about how no one is righteous, not even one. Not one of us is righteous, not even one. The playing field is absolutely level. 
before he comes to this glorious verse. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The playing field was level. And now when we're in Christ, the playing field remains level. It's just moved, as it were. And that has two implications, I think. One, on, the, on one hand, it means that there's no room for judgmentalism as we look at others, um, uh, maybe who've, who've had difficult sexual histories. The playing field is level, so there's no judgmentalism looking out, and there's no guilt looking in. Um, I think when we, when, um, uh, sometimes guilt over issues in our lives takes time to shake off. Um, but there is no guilt for those who've maybe had to have an abortion um, or felt they've had to have an abortion. Um, Jesus died and rose for that, and we are no longer condemned. So no judgmentalism looking out, no guilt looking in. Let's keep that first in the forefront of our minds as we think about abortion. And as we continue conversations after this evening, because I hope we will uh, do that. Um, yeah, so to the topic in hand. I don't know if you realize, yeah, but every working day in this country, there are 820 abortions. And it's estimated by the age of 45, one in three women would have had an abortion. It's not an issue that just affects women. It not just affects the mother and the child, rather, but fathers, grandparents, friends and others, men as well as women, so relevant for all of us. I'm going to pray as we go before we go on. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your great love for us. Seen above all in the Lord Jesus, his death and resurrection, which means that we're no longer condemned. We ask now for your spirit's help here this evening as we tackle this difficult topic together. Help us understand what's going on, that we might respond appropriately. Teach us more about yourself and what it means for us to love and care for all that you have made, including the unborn child. Help us and heal us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to do to this evening, it boils my, what I've got to say anyway, it boils down to three sections. Firstly, some facts and figures, and we'll use those to go off at a few tangents. Then um, uh, an opportunity to reflect back on some of the underlying reasons why we've got to the situation we have. And then we're going to look at the passage in Colossians that I referenced earlier. So let's start with some background. Um, You might not realize, but abortion is basically illegal in this country. It's illegal, but the 1967 Abortion Act allows for it to take place under certain defined circumstances. And we'll look at some of those circumstances in a moment. But suffice it to know that abortion is legally regulated. And one of the legal requirements is that statistics have to be produced and collated and published every year. You can Google them, and they're there. They're huge, great spreadsheets with all kinds of details. And we're going to begin by looking at some of those just to get our bearings. So slide, next slide, please. Can you see that very well? Yeah. I've mentioned already 820 abortions every working day. And you'll notice um, here, I've popped the age ranges here. Um, Probably the two to notice are the extremes. 3% of the total abortions are in under-18s. 
17% are in 35-year-olds and over. 43% of women have had one or more abortions before. Most of them are done early. Very few are done late. I don't know about you, but when you look at statistics like that, I think when we, when we hear media reports and things like that, we often think that abortion is necessary for the really, really difficult situations, the situations of rape or the real youngsters or um, uh, de- de- difficult tragedies and, uh, or fetal abnormality, that kind of thing, or to save the life of the mother. But this, these statistics tell a different story, don't they? Only 3% were under 18, um, 17% were over 35, and 43% had had more than one before. You'll notice from the graphs here that the, the, the number of abortions happening every year is steadily, steadily increasing, um, and last year was the highest. These are 2021's statistics. The second graph here shows the rates in the 16-year-olds, coming down, but the rates in the over 35s steadily increasing until this last year where it remained fairly constant. And we'll come back to those in a second. So as I said, abortion is basically illegal, but there are exceptions under under certain circumstances. And before each abortion is carried out, two doctors have to sign a form saying that in all good conscience, they believe those conditions have been met. And here's the form. I don't know how much of that you can really see, but um, it's names and addresses and things. And then there are these categories, A, B, C, D, under which these two doctors decide that um, abortion is justified and becomes legal. The most common category, next slide please, is category C. And category 98% of abortions are done under this category of category C. Are you, are you ready for the next slide? Is it stuck? Oh, there we go. Yes, thank you. Um, so this category states that, um, and this is sort of legal speak, the pregnancy, can, p- p- uh, abortion can be formed if the pregnancy has not exceeded the 24th week and that the continuance of the pregnancy would involve risk greater than if the pregnancy were terminated of injury to the physical or mental health of the pregnant woman. So we're talking risk. Risk to the woman if the pregnancy continued versus risk if the pregnancy were terminated to the physical or mental health. So on the balance of probabilities, it's riskier for the mother to continue the pregnancy than it is to have an abortion. And according to government statistics, 99.9% of cases, it was the mental, not the physical health of the woman that was considered to be at risk. That is highly subjective and means that category C is basically loose enough to allow for abortion on demand up to 24 weeks. And that is exactly what is happening. There are repeated political moves to remove this 24-week restriction or even to decriminalize abortion completely so there would be no need for doctors or categories of any sort right up to 40 weeks or nine months. Bills come before Parliament on a regular basis and we need to make sure we're aware of them and that our voice is heard. I've never written to my MP as much as I did in recent months. Other categories 
already provide for abortion beyond 24 weeks, right up to term. For example, if the mother's life is at risk, or there is a substantial risk that the child would be seriously handicapped. Someone I know of was carrying a, was carrying a child with Down syndrome, and even as she went into labor, she was offered the option of an abortion because the child would be seriously handicapped. Let's look at category E. Category E is the category that allows for an abortion if there is a serious fetal abnormality, an abnormality um, to the child. And it allows, um, yeah, for either physical or mental abnormalities to the life of the child. And I popped it at the top of those three items there. Just 1% of abortions happened under this category in 2021. And there are some examples given there. Anencephaly is a condition where a child is born without a brain. That is very distressing. And um, life outside the womb is impossible. These things are picked up in antenatal clinic. But on the, that's one extreme. The other extreme is cleft lip and palate. And I don't know about you, but I know several people who have had cleft lips and palates repaired in the first few months of life and without any problems whatsoever. Another issue is Down syndrome, and this is where we'll go off on a little bit of a tangent. Because the number of children born with Down syndrome is falling. In fact, in some countries, noticeably Iceland, children without Down syndrome are not being born at all. And this is because new early blood tests in the antenatal clinic give each mother the probability of their child having Down syndrome. And based on a higher than average probability, which may still be in fact a relatively low probability, many are deciding to opt for abortion. And what's interesting is that these abortions do not show up in this category E for fetal abnormality, but are hidden in that loose category, category C, um, because the parents don't actually know for sure that their child has Down syndrome. They're just deciding not to have further tests because they're not going to, t and they're not going to take the risk. Do you remember those graphs back at the beginning when we see the rates rising in the over 35s? Well, this is the reason behind it. Older women have a higher probability of having a child with Down syndrome. We've always known that. And when tests raise concerns, these women are having abortions. Now, this is scary because it means that as a society, we are in fact saying that we'd rather not have people with Down syndrome around. We'd rather not have people with disabilities. Whatever we say in public about inclusion, whatever we see in our soap operas and on my televisions, these are the private decisions that are being made. We would rather not have people with disabilities around. And that's why this topic is such a sensitive issue for those with disabilities, because it is eugenics at work and it's evil. Of course, that is not to deny that having a child with special needs is easy. It really isn't. Life can be very complex and hard, but many in this situation would say it's not without its blessings either. The statistics here in the middle 
just reiterate that the, the point that abortions done to save the life of the mother are extremely rare. 0.04% or 4 in 10,000 abortions. The next statistic refers to the complication rate. But as the government statistics clearly acknowledge, they're upfront about this, most of these complications are not recorded because they depend on complications happening outside the clinic once people have left. And they depend on how the abortion is performed and they depend on who you listen to. It's a hotly contested area because this, is, this area of abortion is increasingly filled with passion and politics. And the situation is changing as the means of abortion is changing. Mercifully, perhaps, things are getting a bit safer in terms of physical side effects, although psychological side effects and emotional pain still remains. Let's have the next slide, please. When I was a GP, and that was nearly 20 years ago now, most abortions were performed surgically under anaesthetic. The baby was manually, physically removed. Medical abortions, as they're called, are relatively rare, but that's changed a lot. You can see this on the slide, this constant line of the medical abortions and the surgical abortions of the dotted line um, in decline. Now, a medical abortion involves taking two tablets a few days apart. One to block the pregnancy hormones and kill the fetus, and the second to cause the womb to contract so that the fetus is expelled. There's no anaesthetic. Until relatively recently, women needed to be seen in clinics to be counseled, examined, given the tablets. And although the abortion might end up happening at home, the process was basically clinic-based. But since COVID, things have changed. During COVID, temporary legislation was passed, which mean, meant that this could all happen at home without going to the clinic. Telephone consultations sufficed and pills were put in the post. But that temporary legislation has now been made permanent. It can all be done at home, in secret, and without support. The woman alone contracting, bleeding, the baby passed into the toilet. My heart bleeds for both the woman and the child. We need to watch this space because there is increasing evidence that this is not proving safe and statistics may well bear these things out in future years. Latest reports suggest that one in 17 women who have an abortion like that at home end up in hospital and that is a high cost, one that politicians will need to stand up and take notice of. So those are the facts and figures that I wanted to share with you. I don't know if they're what you expected, but I, I suspect when I first came across them, um, they challenged some of my assumptions. But you may be wondering how on earth have we got here? 820 every working day. One in three women have had an abortion by the age of 45. Let's have the next slide. Thank you. Well, I don't know what you can see much of all of that, but I've, I've um, illustrated like this to illustrate that the background is complex. Issues feed off each other, and there are forces behind this issue that just keep the ball rolling. Just a few comments from me on some of these things. Firstly, for the individual woman, 
there can be enormous pressure on women to have abortions. Pressure from family and friends, even when well-intentioned. Phrases like, it's the sensible thing to do. Or it would be better for the baby, I often heard as a GP. There's financial pressure, career pressure. Most of us in this room are relatively well off and resourceful, but others aren't. What about the refugee community? Those who are here in this country illegally, not entitled to benefits. Perhaps dependent on the will of men in their lives. Without a real choice. Here are some quotes from women who in the end had decided not to have an abortion. I was scared and ashamed. I didn't feel as if I had any control or any choice. Lots of women feel they don't have a real choice. Even if those looking outside on their lives feel that they do, that's not how they feel. Another comment, he said he'd leave unless I got rid of it. Another one. I had been brought from India for an arranged marriage. My problem started when I became pregnant and the scan revealed that I was expecting a baby girl. Deep cultural factors. Imagine the pain. Does she have a choice? People in situations such as these need lots of time, care and support. So there's pressure on women individually. And then there's panic. When women find out they are pregnant unexpectedly, the first response is often panic. Now, I have never had an abortion, but there was a time when I thought I needed one. It was just in the end that I wasn't pregnant. My parents would have been devastated. This wasn't planned. What about my career? I was a junior hospital doctor at the time. I hadn't got time for a pregnancy, and a quick abortion would get things back on track. I could get one easily. That was my thinking, and that's often a woman's thinking in situations like this, just to get things back to normal. Pressure and panic are very real, and if we ever find ourselves walking alongside someone who is unexpectedly pregnant, we need to bear both these things in mind, pressure and panic. You may well be doing her a favor by asking her to slow down, buy some time, make sure she's confident she is making the right choice. I put Genesis 3 up there as well, the fall. The corruption caused by the fall is absolutely pervasive. And in particular, it's had a devastating effect on the relationship between men and women. Men and women have far too, men have, sorry, men have far too often reneged on their responsibility to care and protect women. Particularly in the area of sexual intimacy and the commitment of marriage. And women, too, have failed to treat the opposite sex with the honour and respect they are due. While misogyny has played a part, feminism has as well. There's much that's been good about feminism. But second-wave feminism in the 60s took a turn which has been detrimental ever since. It tried, in order to achieve its goals for women in the workplace, to separate us, to free us from childbirth separate us from our biologies, from our bodies. To do that is to reduce us as women, to make us something less than we are. We are made as men and women in God's image to fill and subdue the earth. And there is something profoundly perverse going on when we try to separate those two things. We were meant to have children. 
Now, that's not to undermine single women like myself who have never had children or to deny the many other wonderful things women have done. Then the Abortion Act has played a part, the 1967 Abortion Act. I don't think the people that championed that at the time ever thought we'd be in this kind of situation. But the stats um, have gone up and up and up and up ever since that came in and the categories were introduced under which um, abortions would be possible. And I hope from what you said, at the very least, Category C needs to be sorted out. Denial is another significant factor. We need to take our heads out of the sand about what is happening and hopefully this evening will help. You know, in the days of the slave trade and William Wilberforce, it was not until pictures were seen of the slaves and the conditions that they lived in, um, until pictures were seen of those things that change actually happened and thank God it did. And there are people today who believe that in the same way, we will not actually change anything to do with abortion until we see with our own eyes the reality of what's going on. That's why you see sometimes people campaigning outside parliament, etc., with horrible pictures in the street. They, they're horrible, but they believe it's necessary if we want to see things change. And they may be right. I'm not going to show any pictures tonight but you can imagine what they'd look like. You know, as early as eight weeks, eight weeks from your last period, a woman's last period, even though still just the size of a pound coin, the fetus has all four limbs. There's early bone development. The rib cage is in place. Everything is needed there in miniature form. The eyes, the ears, the mouth, the tongue, early taste buds, and the heart is beating. And yet, for one reason or another, 820 abortions are happening in this country every working day. So we've looked at the facts and the figures. We've thought about the reasons why. And it's easy to feel overwhelmed. The issues are complex. They're multi-layered. They're cultural. They're legal. They're spiritual. And each individual situation is uniquely personal and pastoral. But before we close, I want us to look at that passage in Colossians 1, I promised. Because it makes clear that the Lord Jesus has got absolutely every aspect of this issue covered. And he can be trusted at all times and in every way. So if you've got Bibles on your phones or in front of you, we're looking at Colossians chapter 1 from verse 15. Can you read that from there? Is that big enough? I wasn't quite sure when I put the slide together. Yeah? So here we go from verse 15. This is the NIV. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, 
whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he, God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is a rich passage. And there's so much in it which we'll only just touch on. But keep your Bibles open, keep the text in view as we think about it. This book of Colossians is written to people, was written to people who were tempted to think that Jesus was not quite enough. Enough for salvation, enough for godly living. Jesus was not quite enough. Extras were needed. Things to do, ways to behave, guilt to carry. And this passage says, no, Jesus is enough. Nothing else is needed. In the NIV, this section is entitled The Supremacy of Christ. But it could have been entitled The Sufficiency of Christ. The two, though, are linked It's because Jesus is supreme that he can be sufficient and he can be all we could ever want. I want to draw your attention to a couple of words or phrases in this passage. And the first one is all or all things. I don't know if you noticed how often it came up in the passage, but I think at least eight times. There are other words like everything, which are sort of similar. He created all things. It says in verse 16, there's nothing that Jesus didn't create in heaven or on earth. There's nothing he doesn't own. He is the heir of all things. That's what the term firstborn means in verse 15. He inherits all things. And in verse 18, he's the firstborn from among the dead. He's the resurrected Jesus. He's gone ahead of us, the first to conquer death. And there's nothing he doesn't control. In him, all things hold together, verse 17. It's universal and cosmic, all things in heaven and on earth. He is, after all, the image of the invisible God, verse 15, in whom all the fullness of God dwells, verse 19. All things cosmic and universal. And then the second word I want us to think about is reconcile. Let's look at verses 19 to 20 again. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The Jesus' death on the cross reconciles all things. It's happened, it's done, and again it's cosmic. It's such good news when we are tempted to despair, when we look at the world around us. Think that these complex issues behind all of this are insurmountable. But peace has been achieved through Jesus' death on the cross. Those underlying issues, those thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, those systemic cultural evils behind the horror of abortion have been dealt with and peace made possible by Jesus' death. Of course, we don't see it yet. There are difficult times to be faced, both as individuals and in society. But the future is sure, 
and it means that as we engage with the different different facets of this issue, we have hope. So that's good news for us. That's good news for us corporately. But if we read on individually too, there's good news. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That word but is important. But now he's reconciled you. Whoever you are, whoever we are, whatever we have done, Jesus' death on our behalf makes it possible for us to be holy and without blemish and free from accusation. He knows everything about us, everything we've ever done. And he says, you're perfect. When you turn to him and ask for his mercy, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There are some wonderful words, uh, verses in the book of Isaiah, which are good for us all to remember. It's a courtroom scene, and it's the judge. It's as if the judge is saying the deal is done. They go like this. Come now, says the Lord. Let's settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And the Lord Jesus has made it all possible through his death on our behalf. He's supreme and sufficient in everything. Well, I want to bring this evening to a close now by watching a short video clip. It's a video clip of the normal development of a baby in the womb. Very much speeded up from nine months down to three minutes. (laughs) But I think it's worth it. I think it's also remembering that this was the Lord Jesus incarnate of the Virgin Mary 2,000 years ago. I sometimes think what she went through in carrying our Lord. Um, Praise God she didn't do what many women feel they need to do.